Let's look to the Lord in prayer. So, Father, for the ones today who needs comfort, who needs that movable fort moving in their direction, minister to that person at their point of need. The size and scope of a congregation of this nature, Father, there's going to be a wide range of needs in these three services. And you know them. There are going to be those in the spectrum of life, some of whom come, they, maybe that person is a religious person, but a religious unbeliever, religiously informed, maybe even biblically literate, but has not yet put faith and trust in Jesus. And I pray that uh, the door of the heart is opened up, and that you enter in. Maybe it's the secular mindset, the secular unbeliever. Glad they're here. And they've got some serious intellectual questions, longing for answers. But you are the ultimate answer. And I pray that that mind will be turned toward you. And Father, I pray that they will grapple with the one who has the great purpose of this world who sent Jesus to die for his or her sins. There's going to be others, Father, that are wounded. It might be physical, it might be relational, it might be emotional. But life is filled with the traffic of wounded soldiers. And the movable fortress, Jesus, came into this world made his way from one setting to another, revealing slowly but surely the significance of his claims to be the Son of God and then dying on the cross for our sins to be raised the third day. So, Father, all these things now we're bringing before you. So we give to you all that we can in terms of our attention in the moments to come asking that you would warm these hearts, engage these minds, and shape these wills. So Father, again, we've come here now to see Jesus and, and him only. Praying these things again now in Jesus' name. Amen. Can I have a hug too? She was asked. Of course, I won't let you get by without a hug. So said Tammy Joe Schultz, a name that's going to become incredibly well known in the Christian community throughout the nation in the days to come. Because Tammy Joe Schultz was the pilot who guided. Flight 1380 to the ground April 17th. After mid-flight engine failure, shot debris through a window. Known only to God, reasons why, taking the life of a passenger. What's interesting about Tammy Jo Schultz is that she has an incredible resume. Some say it seems that nearly everybody here in Texas has a Tammy Jill story. 
Taken together, they paint a picture of a woman almost too impossibly caring, too impossibly devoted to her community. This week's emergency landing is not the first time Schultz has made news. Christianity Today tells us that three decades ago, she became one of the first female fighter pilots in the U.S. military. Piloting the F.A. 18 Hornet fighter jets in, in the Navy. What's also interesting is that she has led the children's worship program at her church, taught Sunday school for children, middle schoolers, high schoolers, and adults, says Stacy Thompson, a longtime friend. Well, the church was impressed, of course, but not shocked, Thompson said, when we heard the voice and media replays of cockpit recordings. It was just like talking on the phone with Tammy. That's what she sounds like. And the church, yeah, impressed, as Schultz landed at the plane safely after a 20,000-foot drop in six minutes, then walking the aisle, giving comfort to the passengers. plane was bound from New York to Dallas, and seven of 144 passengers aboard were injured in addition to the one fatality. Social media reports by surviving passengers held Schultz as having, quote, nerves of steel, unquote, and being, quote, a true American hero, unquote. You're a hero, the passenger said. Can I give you a hug? But what's interesting to you and me furthermore is that Christianity Today tells us that Schultz's biggest goal amid the emergency landing and subsequent media coverage is that, quote, she can share her faith and it resonates and awaken people's eyes to how great a God we have. It seems as though as the Apostle Paul is chronicling his, his experiences and the challenges that he has faced, there was a, a life descent happening. Not ascent, but descent. Something needs to be interrupted. Somebody needs to deliver. But who, how, when, where? What's interesting is that in the articles, we're told that Tammy Jo has learned that God's strength is there for her in times of weakness. Have you embraced that? If so, what I want to do with you is to, now looking at verses 8 through 11, continue this understanding of how God works in times of need. Four considerations we're going to draw out here, particularly if you're being overwhelmed by the issues of life. First, out of verse 8, that when it seems as though we are ministering beyond our strength, maybe that's where you're at. Consider, first of all, here what I'll call the weight that God allows. In verse 8, we're told, we, For we do not want you to be unaware, brothers, of the affliction which we, ex- we experienced in Asia. For we were so utterly burdened beyond our strength 
that we despaired of life. You ever been there? And notice that he begins speaking rather generally, not specifically. We do not want you to be unaware, brothers, of the affliction we experienced in Asia. And you say, Garba, what affliction? Details. Well, he doesn't give the details. That's a fascinating thing in and of itself, isn't it? Because what you have to do, and what I have to do, and the relationships and the concentric circles of relationships God places you in is to discern through biblical wisdom to what degree do you share the details of life. Jesus had his three, he had his 12, had his 120, and on and on, the concentric circles of life. Well, at this point, it's very possible that he decided, I will provide sufficient information, but not necessarily exhaustive information. Be able to distinguish the concentric circles of life and who has ears to hear and the capacity to be able to process what it is you have to say. For we do not want you to be unaware, brothers, of the affliction we experienced in Asia. And you look at that word affliction, and you want to draw off for yourself. Now, what does he mean? Well, last week, what we learned is that in the Latin, uh, there is this particular wording, lettering, frankly, L-I-C-T, which was used by a Roman soldier who was subjugating an enemy. L-I-C-T. I want you to think about the word afflict, conflict, inflict. To be afflicted means that there's this heavy weight placed upon you. To be conflicted means that there is something that's gone wrong around you. To be inflicted means that something has gone wrong within you. Now, Paul knows the language. Paul knows the culture. He knows the Roman Empire. And he knows the tendencies of the soldiers of that time period. And he talks about in his own life experience that he had been afflicted. Now, the L-I-C-T of afflicted carried with the idea of a heavy weight placed upon a conquered soldier, upon the chest that was so heavy, in fact, that one lacked the capacity to breathe. And maybe you're there, maybe you've felt that way, where the capacity for the inhale-exhale mechanism of life seems to be affected negatively. You just can't catch your breath because of what's happened in, to you personally. Well, there's Paul at this point, and he's, he's saying, I've been afflicted. I'm being honest with you. This is not an easy thing to have gone through, but it seems as though the L-I-C-T and did have its impact upon me. I was skimming through a, a golf digest. And I was reading when they first manufactured golf balls, they made the covers smooth. But then it was discovered that after a ball had been roughed up, one could get more distance out of it. So they started manufacturing them with dimpled covers, 
they afflicted them so that they could go further. I thought about the Apostle Paul, and I thought about the people of our congregation and the region that we've been placed in, Sheboygan County. A lot of people have been roughed up. But the believer might be prone to ask, but why am I being roughed up? And the answer is is that God has some added distance for you in mind. You're going to have to go beyond your strength. And then the unbeliever is going to look at the believer and say, where does this strength come from? It doesn't come from you. And even the roughed up experiences of life have been used by God to allow you to go distances that otherwise you never thought you could go. And oh, the distances you'll go when you live for Jesus, you see. Paul's been roughed up, have you? He's experienced the L-I-C-T effect. That's the sort of person that in the descent of life, is not surprised when you walk down the aisles and somebody says, can I have a hug? You know at that point that he or she needs to be comforted, but you are, what we're describing here is the movable fort on the battle of life. And you bring comfort in there, in their time of need. The L-I-C-T effect is purposeful. And he says we experienced it in Asia. But now, we're talking, aren't we, about the weight that God allows? Notice the next phrasing. It's there up on the screen. And notice the extreme phrasing. For we, it's plural here, for we were so, not some, so, so utterly, not moderately, so utterly burdened. It carries with it the idea of an extreme weight. Now you take the word burdened and you pull it back to the word afflicted where a conquering soldier lays a heavy weight upon a conquered soldier at this point and feels the weight of the burden. Now, C.S. Lewis wrote about the weight of glory. And what the believer has to do is to consider the weight of God's glory against the weight of life's burdens. And ask, who has the greater weight, weightiness, in my life? And he goes on to say, we were so utterly burdened beyond our strength. But he doesn't say beyond God's strength, does he? No, beyond our strength, but he's in the plural here. He understands the fellowship of the hurting and the weight of life that can seem as though our inhale-exhale mechanism is borderline inoperative. Now, the thing about this whole matter of weight is that God not only measures the weights of life, he also measures the capacities of life. If you've ever gone into a, a weight room, you've watched it. There's a spotter on the scene. They're spotting. 
is somebody's lifting weights, making certain that weight and capacity are consistent with one another so that one might be able to increase their capacity for the weight lift. And would you and I, when we're lifting the weights of life, have to understand that what God is doing is that he is increasing capacity so that the person who does not know Jesus Christ as Lord and Savior is grappling within their own sense of the weightiness of life. Where do you get this capacity? And, of course, you point to the one with the weight of glory, God. But I want us to bear in mind this morning is that there are varying degrees of capacities in a congregation of this size. Now, somebody might outwardly look like they have tremendous capacity, but inwardly, not so. Or maybe they're in a season of life right now where you would have thought they would have the capacity to handle this burden, but in reality, because they have been so afflicted or conflicted, inflicted, we don't know whether there's diminished capacity or not. I want you to bridge together now the idea of afflict, capacity, and weight. Think about the great physician here, Jesus Christ. Ponder this physician, Dr. Albert Schweitzer. The writer tells us, Andrew Davison does, that Schweitzer was 85 years old when I visited him in the jungle. The jungle hospital. You can imagine the deep and profound effect of that three-day visit, which included opportunities for some leisurely conversation with this great humanitarian, theologian, musician, physician. But one event stands out. It was about 11 in the morning, and the equatorial sun was bearing down mercilessly. And we were walking up a hill with Dr. Schweitzer when suddenly he left us, strode across the slope of the hill to a place where an African woman was struggling upward with a huge armload of wood for the cook fires. And I watched with both admiration and concern as the 85-year-old man took the entire load of wood and carried it on up the hill for the relieved woman. When we all reached the top of the hill, one of the members of our group asked Dr. Schweitzer, why do you do things like that? Implying, of course, that in that heat and at his age, he shouldn't be doing that. Dr. Schweitzer, looking right at all of us and pointing to the woman, simply said, quote, No one should ever have to carry a burden like that alone. Unquote. There is built-up capacity when we lift, but don't lift alone. That's what life groups are for. Quip series, there's one even for the third hour, the likes. What we want to bear in mind here is that we're spotters. We have to bear in mind here that there's 
varying degrees of capacities, we, we might be able to measure the weight that, person is, that, is, that person's lifting, but we might not have a full comprehension of the capacity that that person has for the lift. We bring all this together, you see, in the L-I-C-T of life. And Paul is saying we were so, not some, utterly, not moderately, burdened. But we're told you're burdened beyond our strength. But what you've got to bear in mind is that you are not burdened beyond God's strength. But notice the emotional impact that this had upon the Apostle Paul at the end of verse 8. You're still in verse 8. He said that we despaired of life itself. You ever been there? Now moving from the Latin to the Greek. The Greek word here for despaired carries with the idea of no exit. There was a philosopher who wrote a book with that title. No passage, no way out. Or felt as though there just seems to be no way out of this. There was a painter who was conducting a class for his students, and he was speaking on the subject of artistic composition. And he emphasized that it was wrong to portray a woodland, forest, or wilderness without painting into it a path out of the trees. Quote, when a true artist draws any kind of picture, say a landscape, he needs to give the picture an out. Otherwise, the tangle of trees and the trackless space are simply going to depress and create despair in the heart of the onlooker. But then there's Jesus who said, I am the way and the truth and the life, and no one comes to the Father but through me, not merely to me, but through me. And so we see that the penalty for sin has been paid. The power of sin is broken. And the future, the presence of sin, will be removed in this great thoroughfare of life. So when it seems as though we, we are ministering beyond our strength, you know, I have to consider, first of all, the weight that God allows all this will lead in eventually what Paul will say in 12.9, my grace is sufficient for you, for my power is made perfect in weakness. We were so burdened beyond our strength that we despaired of life itself. But now we're up to verse 9. So here's your second consideration. You began with the weight that God allows in verse 8. But now, second of all, notice with me the purpose that God established in verse 9. Now, for emphasis, he begins with the word indeed. But then there's a comma, and he adds at this point, we. He's in the plural, so there's a, this fellowship of the trials of life. He's not going it alone. 
and we in this congregation aren't meant to go at it alone. But then he says, we have received, have received the sentence of death. Now, a couple weeks back, when I was standing in front of the Bema seat in Corinth, Greece, we showed a picture on the screen of the Bema seat, and that's where Gallio was rendering a verdict because there were secularist mindset, religiously secular, interestingly enough, Jews, who wanted, wanted the Apostle Paul tried and found guilty of what he was saying with regard to Jesus being Messiah. And Gallio dismissed the charges. But the Apostle Paul found himself in continuous tension with the higher authorities when it involved their verdicts. Now that stands behind what Paul is writing at this point. It felt, but notice he uses the word felt. In other words, he's talking about his emotions at this point. I'm being honest with you, he's saying, and this is how it felt. We felt that we had received the sentence of death. Maybe hadn't received the sentence of death. They sure felt that way. He's allowing you to be able to get into the mindset of his thought processes here. And understand that so often it seems as though we're on trial. Job understood that. Job complained, I do not believe he would give me a hearing, speaking of God in Job 9.16. Very judicial understanding of God. Or, since I am already found guilty, why should I struggle in vain? Chapter 9, verse 29. Or again, in chapter 13, verse 3, I, I desire to speak to the Almighty and be able to argue my case with God. But what strikes me, it doesn't strike you that when God's children feel like they've been called into court, we've got to remember that our Father is the judge. Which takes us back to what we looked at last week, where in verse 3, he had said, Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ which in turn took us back to the seven statements on the cross where he began with, Father, forgive them, for they know not what they do, speaking of Jesus, and would end with, Father, into thy hands I commit my spirit. But juxtaposed between two Father statements, right in the middle of it all, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? Right in the heart of it all, he had the judicial, while at the beginning and the end, he had the paternal. Apostle Paul picks up on it. In verse 3, blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ. Tied together now with this judicial feeling of a sense of death. Indeed, we felt that we'd received the sense of death at this point. But now, here's your purpose, and you're wondering, why am I going through what I'm going through? Never overlook the B-U-T of Scripture. It seems as though when everything's going wrong, 
the phrase, but God, or something similar breaks in. We've covered that on Sunday mornings. But that was to make us rely not on ourselves, but on God, who raises the dead. Now, it's possible that the Apostle Paul is looking back and recalling the time when he was religiously self-sufficient. But then on the road to Damascus, when God broke in, he blinded the Apostle Paul so that the Apostle Paul would have to rely upon another individual to escort him to a place, a house, a home where he could meet his needs. God has a way, you see, of going after this sense of self-reliance so that we uh, realize we have such diminished capacities, we shift from self-reliance to God-reliance. And then we realize that God is infinite, eternal, and unchangeable, which means then that he has infinite, eternal, unchangeable capacities. And then it's evidenced by the next phrase here. He's the one who raises the dead. Talk about the capacity to handle the burdens of life. He can raise the dead. E.B. White was watching his wife, Catherine. He tells us she was planting the, the planting of bulbs in her garden in the last autumn of her life, he wrote. There is something touching in her bedraggled appearance, this elderly small hunched-over figure, her studied absorption, and the implausible notion that there would be yet another spring to her life, oblivious to the ending of her own days, which she knew perfectly well was near at hand, sitting there with her detailed chart under those dark skies in a dying October, calmly plotting the resurrection, unquote. She's busy thinking about spring in the midst of her autumn. But that was to make us rely not on ourselves, but on God. So now you and I have got to think seriously about this whole matter of reliance. Because this whole matter of God's purposefulness and allowing us to go through what we go through is to address the whole matter of reliance. Self-reliance or God-reliance. And ultimately, in the matter of salvation... Relying upon my work or relying upon Christ's work? Because if it's my work, I am unfinished business. But if we rely upon Christ's work, he on the cross said, it is finished. No self-reliance, but God-reliance in the Apostle Paul's psyche. That was to make us rely not on ourselves, note the negative, but now the positive, but on God, 
And now notice not Paul's capacity. Notice God's capacity who raises the dead. And now you have pulled together the weight with the purpose. This is important. The weight that God is allowing you, in verse 8, you've got to bear in mind that in the fellowship of weightlifters, we need spotters. That's what we do. We've also got to understand that the weight that God allows in verse 8 has got to be tied to the purpose that God established in verse 9 and in the ultimate purposefulness of Jesus suffering and dying in our place for our sins. Jesus, in his suffering, reminds us that God is not indifferent to suffering, but rather God is invested in suffering. If he was simply indifferent to suffering, we're in a sorry state. But he's invested in suffering. And it's so that you and I can be able to understand the significance of what this is all about, the purpose that God established in verse 9 Read it through now in its entirety. Indeed, we felt that we had received the sentence of death. Felt, though. But. You need a but. But that was to make us rely not on ourselves, but on God who raises the dead. And then Paul, who roughly six years later in his imprisonment in Rome, would pen this thought to the people in Philippi, that I may know him and the power of his resurrection and may share his sufferings, becoming like him in his death, that by any means possible I may attain the resurrection from the dead. Now, you've made your way through verse 9. You've pulled together the weight of life with the purpose of life but now, I want you to notice thirdly with me, the hope that God instills. From the weight that God allows to the purpose that God established, you're up to verse 10 now, and the hope that God instills, and you'll see that there, he delivered us, past tense, from such a deadly peril, and he will deliver us, future tense. On him we have set our hope that he will deliver us again. Notice here that when Paul talks about hope, you and I have got to bear in mind is that there's a tension between feeling helpless and the whole matter of feeling hopeless. Haven't you been struck when you minister to people, say in nursing homes or in hospitals, or deathbeds, and so on, that it's possible to feel helpless yet hopeful. But the unbeliever is not going to understand that because this is all that there is in their existential thinking. And so helpless and hopeless go hand in hand. But the whole matter of the fact is that when you are dealing with the cross of Jesus Christ, you tie it to the resurrection, the empty tomb of Jesus Christ, 
and voluntarily Jesus rendered himself helpless. But by making a statement to that thief on the cross, today you will be with me in paradise, he at the same time articulated hopefulness. Now, if you're a teacher, if you're a medical community, whatever, in the emotional sphere of the whole matter of health, You've got the whole realm of the helpless. And how does help and hope wed, connect, or disconnect in the way in which they approach the realities of life? In verse 10, he delivered us from such a deadly peril. Past tense, he will deliver us, that's hope. But notice furthermore, when he said he delivered us, past tense, he's not going to waste his experiences. He's going to invest his experiences. He doesn't have a a past tense God on his hands here where he looks back at the good old days when God used to do great things for him and wonders, now, well, where are you, God? Make certain you don't have a past tense God on your hand. You've got a past tense, present tense, future tense God because at that burning bush when Moses wanted to know, and who shall I say sent me? Tell them that I am sent you, not I was. Paul now is dealing with the sum total of who God is. You've got to be overwhelmed at this point when he's thinking about the whole matter. The second part of verse 10, we have set our hope that he will deliver us again, you see. And then I thought about that, and I I pondered that, and so I was thinking about the ways in which hope gets expressed. In Cicero's, while there's life, there's hope, or Alexander Hope's lines from an essay of man, hope springs eternal in the human breast. Man never is, but always to be blessed. But then your mind goes, for example, to Martin Luther, quote, everything that is done in the world is done by hope, unquote. Where there's faith, there's hope. Hope is never ill, wrote John Bunyan, when faith is well. But there's Job. Job had his ups, he has his downs throughout the writing of the book of Job. What strength do I have that I should still hope, he asked. What prospects that I should be patient, in Job 6, verse 11. My days are swifter than a weaver's shuttle. They come to an end without hope, in 7, 6. But there's this burst of faith, and Job could say, though he slay me, yet I will hope in him in 1315. He uses this imagery of horticulture. He uproots my hope like a tree in Job 19, verse 10. Now you and I know that a hope that's rooted is a hope that's alive. But a hope that is uprooted is a dead hope. But as we noted last week, Peter has an answer to that whole thing of feeling uprooted with the, with the challenges and with the difficulties and with the challenges of life. Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ. According to his great mercy, he has caused us to be born again to a living hope. Is that part of your experience? So now you bring into 
your life experience. The fourth and final consideration comes out of verse 11 here. I want you to notice, fourthly, how once again, it's the whole family of faith comes into play. You also must help us by prayer, Paul writes, so that many will give thanks on our behalf for the blessing granted us through the prayers of many. So now notice with me, fourthly, the prayers that God desires. So how do you pray? When it seems as though the capacity and the burden don't seem to match up. My pastor years ago, Warren Wearsby at the Moody Church, draws out three significant insights on the way in which people typically pray when they're so overwhelmed by life. He says, some pray to escape suffering, which is normal, of course. Paul prayed three times for the thorn in the flesh to be removed. Jesus prayed similarly in the garden. But you and I know at this point that there's, there's challenges to that whole matter, that when it comes to this whole issue of escaping suffering on that cross, Jesus was tempted to escape the suffering. If you were the Son of God, come on down. But if he escaped the suffering, we would not be able to escape the penalty of our sins. So we've got a model there that God is not indifferent to suffering. God is invested in suffering. Some people pray to simply escape the suffering of life. But there's a second type. Rather than escape it, their approach is to endure it. Now, the Apostle Paul might have thought that at one time. He was a Jew by birth. He was a Roman citizen. And the Romans knew a great deal about endurance. And they showed tremendous capacity with that whole matter. And they had bought into the Stoic philosophies of the Greeks. You remember Kipling? If? If you can keep your head when all about you are losing theirs and blaming it on you. And continues. And if you can force your heart and nerve and sinew to serve your turn long after they're gone, and concludes, yours is the earth and everything that's in it, and which is more, you'll be a man, my son. But there's some problems with this. Even if you can, the endurance approach creates challenges. We've said that not everybody possesses the capacity to be a stoic. So then what? Second of all, in this endurance approach, it tends to glorify humanity rather than God. Thirdly, we all have a certain amount of inner strength and it doesn't take long for us to simply use it up. Fourthly, it's kind of a subtle hypocrisy here, don't we? Spot it. You can put up a good front when people are watching, they're admiring your stoicism in the midst of the challenges of life, but then it's easy to fall apart when you're alone. We can do better than that. 
Jesus remained on that cross. He didn't come down. He didn't escape. He didn't endure. See, the third approach is not to escape, not to endure, but to enlist. Where suffering is not your master. No, suffering is your servant. And now you have a capacity to impact others on the platform of life because the person who lacks capacity as their resources are diminished is wondering where do you get your capacity from. But you see, you've got this spotter in the weight room of life who has measured not only the weight that you're carrying but your capacity. And then you've got this infinite, eternal, unchangeable God who sent the second member of the Trinity into this world to die in your place for your sins and my sins. And on the third day, we find that the one who has ultimate capacity raises Jesus from the dead, and now that shapes how you pray in the midst of the challenges of life. You also must help us by prayer so that many will give thanks on our behalf for the blessing granted us through the prayers of many. You're praying for enlistment more than merely endurance more than merely the escape. As John Bunyan put it, you can do more than pray after you've prayed, but you cannot do more than pray until you pray, which better explains how Tammy Joe is praying and simultaneously thinking through her strategies as the pilot who guided Flight 1380 to the ground. A recognizable figure in her church, teaches Sunday school, middle schoolers, high schoolers, a pilot along with her husband. Everybody's got a Tammy Joe story, so they say, a woman who makes news where three decades ago she became one of the first female fighters, fighter pilots in the U.S. military, piloting an F.A. 18 Hornet fighter jet in the Navy. But in the descent of life, when it's landed, she makes her way down the aisle, bringing comfort, a movable fort. Do I get a hug? The passenger asked. Tammy says, of course, I won't let you buy without one. And her friend says, her goal in life is to share her faith and let it resonate and awaken people's eyes to how great a God we have. Is that your God? Let's stand together. So now, Father, in the second of these services, again, we're thanking you and praising you that in this congregation you know the capacity of each individual. And there is a dual measurement of the measurement of weight and the measurement of capacity. And then we're overawed by the capacities of the cross of Christ who chose not to escape but to enlist, and then three days later was raised from the dead. 
giving us a living hope. So, Father, if there's anybody in these services today that comes here that seems overwhelmed by life, remind them that you are teaching us we are not to be caught up in self-reliance. We are, by faith, to be focused upon God-reliance through the work and finished work of Christ. And we'll give all the praise and all glory to the one who died for our sins and was raised on the third day. Praying these things now in Jesus' name. Amen. God bless you.